Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reef podcast. Today's guest is a trainee psychotherapist from the UK. He goes by the online alias Mio Leo. Welcome to the show, Leo. How are you doing? Hi, Christian. Thanks very much. Uh, doing really, really good and excited to be chatting to you. Yeah, and to no, have the opportunity to say hello. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, obviously, I've discovered you through TikTok. And I will say this, just on a side note for anyone that is a podcaster, if you have TikTok, uh, use it. If you don't, get it. It's a great resource for just finding people in general, I think. And um, I found quite a few guests off, uh, that I've been able to luckily interview. And, you know, I, to be honest, I was thinking about having you on the show for some time. And then I was kind of thinking... Um, and I know how this will sound because I, I sometimes talk about how on the podcast I go through like transitionary periods and sure. there'll be a, a few episodes and this was one as well where I don't have like loads and loads of info to go on. I've got like a little mm-hmm. bit of info and I'm thinking, okay, how can I construct a good conversation with someone without knowing much about them and without asking cliche questions you know like what's your favorite color or you know like what drives you you know it's yeah difficult to do that how do you tailor it It, well it sounds like yeah i mean it's like i said to you before we started recording like this show now i think is entering a period where it sounds like art it's, it's entering it's it's uh you know it's new wave period it's yeah. uh rembrandt phase yeah <laughs> I, I think it's just um i think i've realized because i think oh what is this episode 157 i believe um we're close wow. to two years in yeah in july thank you and um cool. i think over that time, I've actually finally figured out that the show is supposed to be more about sharing people's stories, getting to know people. Um, that's that's when the, the conversations are best, when people feel comfortable and they want to talk and just, you kind of see what happens, you know? Um, I'm not going like to, it's like, I'm, just I'm not going to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I feel, well, for instance, I mean, there's a lot of podcasts that I listen to. Some are more research-based and, um some are more relaxed and kicked back like i like for instance the style that joe rogan has but then i like mm. the extensive research of some of the professional wrestling podcasts that i listen to so i've tried to kind okay. of make like an amalgamation of the two and um yeah anyway i'm i've been rambling on a lot about the podcast just because it was on my mind but let's actually talk no, about nice to have some context <laughs> yeah this is what you're signing up to this is what you're appearing <laughs> this is what you're becoming a part of uh, <laughs> um yeah i just wanted to like ask you right off the bat get straight jump straight into things why did you choose yeah. to pursue a career in psychotherapy so talk us through your journey and how you got up to that point yeah well so gosh that's it's a long story that one but i think perfect that <laughs> so really it's it, it starts with uh, my life experience, of course, which was that you know I think I've I've shared relatively openly on on my TikTok about you know having a, a bit of a background, personal background of some trauma, some emotional difficulty, a um, little bit of emotional neglect, uh, just just some difficult stuff. And I think that that environment, although it was difficult, you know, I really like Jung's phrase basic premise that he says that every in a sense every single person every child is waiting for a crisis to give their life meaning which is a really nice positive spin on the idea that something disastrous is just a disaster 
you know, what if it also offers opportunity? So I think the opportunity that it, it presented me was a sense, well, being interested in my own experience, you know, be, because, you know, becoming hypervigilant, becoming very, very aware of your own difficult emotions gets you a little bit versed in being interested in that, you know, and I think what bounced off of that was being interested in philosophy, the meaning of life, because I'm struggling to kind of grasp a basic sense of what this is all about, right? You know, so anxiety and, and that sort of thing, driving, trying to grow, basically. And an interest in other people, what makes other people work? Um, and I think that was the main kind of backdrop. And then specific events as I got close to uh, beginning training was my own personal process in therapy, where I think I was quite inspired by the idea that yes, you can um, come up with a different framework, a different way of understanding yourself that genuinely does help um, and can make change. And I thought, I'd love to be able to give that. So, uh, yeah. One thing I'm interested by, because I've heard that a lot of psychotherapists actually do go to therapy um i think mm -hmm. I've, i might have even heard that from yourself actually at one point following your work but, yes and to That's me right. from a logical kind of perspective it's like you know generally speaking in life i think you can always offer more empathy and be more useful to other people when they're going for a specific situation if you've been through it too, because you kind of know how to navigate it. So logically, you know, if you're going to be a therapist, it kind of makes sense that you've, you know, dealt with things yourself and therefore um, you're able to better speak on it. But what do you make of, you know, maybe therapists that have not experienced any tra trauma or issues? Like, can they really, do you think, realistically help people in the same way, more so or less? So like, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think that, let's say, an emotional um, availability, you know, an, an empathic sort of attitude, um, a, a, an enthusiasm, a desire, an attitude to try to relate to the other person, I think is a quality that doesn't necessarily require um, a, a, a tragic backstory, for example. You know, so there is a correlation between all of the psych famous psychoanalysts, Jung, Freud, and so on, Klein, all of them, all of them have had some troubling accounts and it's so varied. And I think the fact that it's so varied indicates that I, I don't think any one person on this earth can, can genuinely go through life without some experience, something impacting them and, and influencing their behavior and their perception. And, you know, I don't think it necessarily needs to be called big, big T trauma as a, a label to be a worthwhile experience so if, i think if you've got a good account of your own experience a good awareness of your own experience and an interest in others in the meaning of life in trying to figure out what well, being interested in relationship i think all sorts of backgrounds of people are suitable for that kind of work i think <clears throat> while you were speaking i was kind of thinking about and and you didn't come out and say it exactly, but you know I think mm. it's obviously a big part of the job, as it is with any situation where you're trying to relate to people, is is just you know offering empathy 
You know, I remember yeah. my first and only ever experience in therapy, uh, which put me off for life. And uh, since then, people are like, oh, oh no, it's a, an anomaly. Oh, no, it was just a one-off, blah, blah, blah. They tried to convince me. I'm like, I'm too stubborn anyway. It's like, I'll deal with stuff myself and whatever, right? Um, yeah. I, I, was at, I was at university. I was having a really bad time of it. And... Mm. I, again like i said i'm very stubborn so i i'm totally against ever getting help unless i'm like so unbelievably desperate and okay. I, won't, I won't go into the details of why but i was having a tough situation and mm-hmm. so i thought i would use the services at the university and mm-hmm. i waited for about half an hour maybe 45 minutes finally got into this room i wasn't signed up or anything but um mm-hmm. you know i had an option to actually talk to someone so i did i walk into this room and I sit and I bear, bear in mind, I'm a person that never cries. Okay. Like there, there have been some funerals that I've been to a lot of funerals. Uh, there's been a few where uh, there was one point I remember I was about 16, 17 and I was like, is there something wrong with me? Like I can't, mm. you know, uh, but as I'm now, as I'm older, I find myself getting more emotional at things. Sometimes I have to like be like Stop crying, you baby, but there's nothing wrong with showing emotion. I will just say that now. It's just my own thing. Um, no, that's your own self narrative. Yeah, yeah but, but back that back then, I was a bit more like, no, can't cry. Uh, men don't cry. All, all that BS. Mm. Yeah, just try, to try to sort of turn it into a feeling of it being a virtue. Uh, it was almost or a, a strong quality, something like that. Men don't cry as a as a sort of. Do, do you know? It wasn't even that. No, it was that I'd been taught that. Um, mm through various male role models in the year. And I've also had the opposite, you know, but I guess, mm. you know, bad experiences at school, bad experiences in different situations, work situations. I, I don't know, over time, and also it's a generational thing as well. A lot of people I'm meeting were like 20, 30 years older than me. And that has an impression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to always think about whatever influences you say from older people they've been influenced by people older than them and the world was Absolutely. different then that's the thing you know? oh, it, inter- intergenerational experience is a fascinating area uh, mm. and, and huge, hugely important i think you know if you usually you hear the phrase intergenerational trauma so you know and if if, if we bear in mind the war generation was only two generations ago that I think I made a video about this not long ago, which is basically about you know this this cataclysm I think that runs through some the underbelly I think of, of sort of grin and bear it culture and emotional retentiveness. We're not very open or articulate about our vulnerabilities in general, especially men I think, and yeah, and I think I can see that if you, you can trace that thread through previous generations, you know. It's, it, it makes sense to me because it's like there were different requirements of people in those times. Um, but at the same time, you know, when people say things like, oh, it was wrong that people had to live this way and had to feel this way, etc." I agree with them. Mm-hmm. But I just think mm-hmm. it's like we're constantly working on ourselves. We're constantly even now, you know, people will say, oh, it's the best it's ever been as far as people being able to talk and, and talk out. I disagree. I think that while it is good to to have these conversations, it's interesting, um, say, as a man being able to to talk about these things, 
mm. and not be ridiculed for it. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, and I've said this before on the show and in other contexts, that mm-hmm. there's a big difference between, oh, I do a live stream and I talk about how I feel and people are like, oh, wow, versus, say, working yeah. in a workplace or, you know what I mean? Like, I, I can count, even in more recent years where I've been in certain work situations and I've yes. had to, I mean, I think it's, it speaks to adult, being an adult as well. It's not really to do with gender or anything like that. It's like controlling your emotion in professional settings is very important because if you don't, you lose your power in that situation and people call you unprofessional, but you know, you're not a robot. That's the thing. Um, I agree with that. Mm. Yeah. And, and people I've had on the show before have, have kind of said as much, like I had a, a business owner on the show not, not too long ago. And he said that a lot of the time he would start his morning meetings just by asking everyone how they were. And he said that like a lot of the time people would be like, eh, I'm more, like he'd ask them out of a scale of one to 10 and they'd give their rough idea of what they were. And then this one time, one of his members of staff just said, well, I'm a zero today. And then he was like, oh my God, like, tell us what's wrong. And she explained all this mm. terrible stuff that was going on. And, and mm-hmm. then he said, well, okay, what can we do to, to help with this situation? And what, you know, how can we help yes. you to be where you need to be? Yeah. So, so there are, there are examples of where from a professional setting or, or whatever mental health and, and things like that are taken seriously. But I still feel like in many cases, it's something that can and will be used against you. You know, I, I think it, I mean, there's so many variables in this. I mean, it, it, it always takes two to tango. Absolutely. So there's, there, you know, there's, there's a responsibility on the, uh, the sharer and there is a responsibility on the listener. So it's like in the work culture, there may be a, a very noble intention to be receptive and to be, you know, promoting and advocating of mental health. But what about if you're coming into contact with a, a person that's got, yeah, some, some serious stuff going on that desperately needs containing. And this person in turn mis- has misrepresented the workplace as the receptive other that's going to hear them and sort it out. It's like, I, I think it's a good thing to be boundary to go, well, here's the extent to which we can look after you, but this sounds like something that needs a little bit further intention and we, we'd love to encourage you to find the space. But I think it can get mucky when, let's say, the workplace um, institution, the people involved, presume to be infinitely available without actually having that skill set, the responsibility, the ethics to let someone process their stuff in the right place. And that's how I'd put it. I remember seeing a TikTok video, maybe it was like a long, long form one, so it's a couple of minutes long. Uh, maybe about a year and a half ago and it was a girl who was sitting there with her friend calling up her workplace to let them know that she was having another like a mental health day like a bad day yeah I need I need I need to, I need to be off I'm sick you know right. need a mental health day whatever Lovely. um yeah. and the the person at the other end's response is exactly what I've, I've been referring to and i've spoken about on the show before of 
mm. toxic workplace. And it was amazing the 360 shift that happened during the phone mm. call. So she badges this girl and says, oh, well, I can't remember her name. Let's say her name's Catherine. Oh, well, Catherine, you know, it's, it's not acceptable, really, is it? I mean, you know, you, you've been th sick th three times now and, you know, it's, mm. it's unacceptable. And she's like, did you not mm. listen to what I said? I'm having yeah bad mental health time of it and this <laughs> is not helping <laughs> right yeah. and she just keeps yeah. going on and on and on and then let's say the other name's deborah she's probably a deborah she says uh -huh. well deborah i quit then mm -hmm. i quit and she's like and then it's amazing because the person on the phone's like oh no well let's not be hasty now no come on now mm. and then she's suddenly trying mm. to backtrack and she's like no I, yeah i don't want this job i don't need this job like, i don't need this kind of harassment i'm having a bad mental health day um God, yeah you know and it was mm. amazing she was because she just realized that she was wrong on the phone and she she'd messed up majorly and from a legal standpoint doesn't look good you know you've pushed a person when they've told you that they're having yes. a bad mental health time you could sue someone for that you could sue them for like maybe harassment or something or i, I don't know I some, something yeah you probably could yeah, yeah it wouldn't i mean we live in that we live in a time of, of where reputation is everything you know and it could be shattered like that so it's especially for a company mm. so you've really got to be careful yeah I think so. I guess my when I hear that story, my first thought doesn't go to the sort of um, reputational or legal consequences first. I what what I think of is the experience of the employee. You know, in mm. a scenario like that, their experience basically is being unreceived. You know, so let's say it was a, a you know a therapeutic encounter or one that is posing itself as a therapeutic encounter that says, "Yes, tell me all about it. I'm all ears." and you know vulnerable here's a need that i have here is the reason why i have that need which is very vulnerable to, to actually share and then if the other person's response is oh gosh actually that's a bit much or you know that's not really uh gonna gonna cut it for us yeah it it's not a pleasant experience I just, like I just want to interject something based on what you said which i think is very interesting is this idea when you said before about like how a company can sort of say like, oh, we'll, we'll be here, we'll, we'll sort it, so to speak, mm. right? Mm. I think it's really important. And it doesn't matter if you're working for a business or if it's just a one-on-one, -on -one, like some, a friend. Like whenever I think mm -hmm. about, for instance, be, like what I've understood about empathy as a concept mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. let's say you're going for a bad time and I see that and I reach out mm -hmm. to you and I say, mm -hmm. hey, I'm here, I'm here for you, mm -hmm. talk to me. Yeah. Now what that means, I think a lot of people just think like, oh, you can just have like a nice five minute conversation and that's it. It's like, no, what, what yes. will happen is that that person, if they trust you, which is a big deal by the way, if someone is going through a difficult mm -hmm. time and they decide to open up to you, don't take that lightly, mm -hmm. that's a big thing. So for you sure. open up to that person and then it's almost like a contract. It's like you, you've you, you got to now deliver your side of the things. So and what you've promised is that you're going mm. to be there for them and listen. And that could be an hour, five hours. That could be a weekend. You don't know. But you've signed up mm. for that when you mm. said, I will help you. Now, don't get me wrong. 
it, it Maybe, there is yeah. a there is a line and you can't fix someone else's life but the whole point i think of empathy is like i imagine it like watering flowers where okay. let's say the the flower is wiltering right yeah you water it a little bit it starts sprouting up now it's in a bit of a stronger position where it can start helping itself that mm. i think is is really empathy at its best you're not there to try and fix someone else's life they have to fix it themselves but you can guide them you can lift them up you can get them back to normal you know like normal functioning parameters so to speak and also i just want to finish the yes. story because it connects to what i was saying earlier because i know there'll be people like he didn't finish the story i'm gonna finish the story so sure. when i did go to that one and only psychotherapy session and it links to what we're saying mm. as well funnily enough i've linked it all I'm, yeah um, perfect <laughs> wait outside this book person's door for 45 minutes finally get to sit down pour my heart out to a complete stranger which i don't mm. do that easily unless i know you i'm tricky with that but i did it and i burst into tears in front of this stranger and the woman just sat there like mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then all i heard after half an hour was okay our time's up so i've got to let you go and i was oh, being ushered, i was being ushered out of the door and i'm like like my face is like red like you know tears are yes. everywhere <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> uh, and, and she's like ushering me out like come on now fuck off you know i've got to get home and i was just like yeah. i remember the door closed and i was just like wow i'm never doing that again <laughs> but to bring it back the point of the story is like her job was to actually give me something in that scenario right mm -hmm. Here's what I would have done. Yeah, okay, maybe I finished it because she was just. Uh, by the way, she she was like her, her time's up for the day. She I didn't I don't know if she said like she had to go or something, but she said like oh sessions like she made it clear that she needed to go home or, or that it's over. And it's like if you're Gosh. really that's the thing. If you're co certainly committed to your position, you will stay and do what you need to do. You, you know well, what I mean. And secondly, I, I mean, go on. No, I, I think I've, I have a big response to it, but, I, but you're all over there, it. so I don't want to interrupt you. Well, all I was going to say is, although, uh, you know, I don't want to get into mudslinging or anything like that, but it sounds like your experience, it, what was in need really, was really, really framing what was going to be done in the first session. So, 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 so here's what this space is for. Here's what I'm hoping to establish with you the first time. And I think you know to, to have an awareness of the time towards the end of the session to think about the impact you know to have a that self-awareness how might the client receive my saying i have to go now we've got to wrap up especially at the most critical moment which is the first point of contact good lord like i i would say what would i have done i i would have taken the time i think to go that's a lot yeah, just to say that you have shared a great deal. It matters to me. We don't quite have the space to account for everything that you've said, but it has really impacted me, um, and and it matters. And I'm in. And I would like to take this further with you next week because I have a lot of responses. So that might not have been enough to account for everything you've said, but the the essential message is that you received was the opposite. Was your your 
experience doesn't really land with me it's not relevant or, or whatever you know it's so yeah i'm sorry you had that experience oh no no, no. <laughs> i mean it, it was a lifetime ago it's fine it's just um the reason i want to bring it up is i, th- I think it is important from the empathy perspective and also with what you're laying out there there needs to be some sort of mapping out guidance like this is what you can come to expect this is what we will achieve in this 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 and this time um Mm. it's funny that you say like oh we we would set up a follow-up session blah 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 blah. she said nothing to me there was no Mm. follow-up there was no like i think she said something like oh if you want to book another appointment you have to go to it's like you should be booking the appointment do you know what yes. I mean? Like I'm in distress. You should be helping, well, but you know, whatever. It was, it was just a crappy service. But um, well, in that, I mean, in that scenario where it, the the most that you get, the the closest that you get towards a follow up is a book an appointment if you want to see me again. It's like it, there's something lost. <laughs> there's something. There's some, there's something not relational, immediately relational between you and that person. Mm. It's like sort of I am merely the conduit of a service. If you want to speak to therapy bot again, you must, you know, go to machine and press. Blah, blah. <laughs> nah, yeah, there's, there's not enough human. I, I want I want to speak to you again. You know, what's, what's, your, a long way. what's your approach to empathy, Leo? How do you approach it? Well, I mean, empathy is is just a word that's obviously used in so many different contexts. Um, when I first, when I think of empathy, I think of a theorist, a very foundational theorist that informs most um, what we call humanistic psychotherapy. And I can always circle back around to what I mean by that. But well, basically, humanistic means um, the main. It believes the main healing factor is human relationship, rather than another type of approach which is understanding insights knowing what you do you know knowing is the healing factor so and i think you need a bit of both but anyway i digress so empathy so carl rogers has this theory basically that in order for a person to grow you need three qualities um you need the 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 therapist or the person listening to show what's called unconditional positive regard so a choice a choice of attitude to love appreciate the wholeness of this person regardless of what they bring or do um and to try and foster that within yourself then the second quality is what's called congruence basically uh genuineness to have your the way that you behave and the way that you express yourself to actually match your inner experience and that's rather than any kind of contrivance or pretense so a, a attempting to be as genuine as possible and then the last quality is empathy so and what Carl Rogers kind of said about empathy was you need to try to reach in to feel and understand and see the experience of the other person as closely as possible but uh, never so much to lose your own sense of self so you, you have to sort of be have a sense of I am the person I and experiencing this person's experience sort of so like the he called it the as if quality so you need a little hook a little line uh, attached to your ship that to get there because otherwise you sort of merge and and then you don't have a sense of relationship if you lose your own self by by zooming in and and getting so let's say like you felt all of their anxiety and, and you really felt it without the i am feeling this 
with with purpose and then you're just in the same boat as them you know you, you so and i think uh, one more thing i'd say about empathy people often say oh if you do it right you can really know and experience the other person's experience but i don't know i'm a little bit of a cynic on that i, I think you you can't experience someone else's experience how could you possibly know how could you possibly say oh i know what you mean i know how you feel i think it's categorically impossible to say because you've only got your own separate frame of reference your own response your own subjectivity to react with so i'd say you can only experience another person's experiencing and have your own response to that i think Empathy has been something that I've been learning a lot about over the last uh, five to six years, I would say. And mm. even in the last year, I thought I had it kind of like totally figured out. But then yeah. something happened recently, which kind of totally reframed the way I look at it. So mm. I was under the impression that you yeah you're supposed to sit and say things like oh i understand you i know how you feel and do you know what that mm. i think that is genuine if you have gone through a similar experience i yes. think i think i think your wording has is is has to be careful though because i've noticed some people when you say that to them they will get hostile and be like you don't know what i'm dealing with which is fair enough if you're upset yes. and you know and also you don't know that that other person has gone through something similar. Plus it's not going to be the same situation. Secondly, mm -hmm. um, sometimes, yeah, you get people that are, that will receive that well and will be like, Oh, okay. Um, tell me about your experience. But yes. at the end of the day, I, I agree with your point. I, I think it's, that's not really what empathy is about. And I go to the example I gave recently where I was talking to someone and they kind of point blank turned around to me and just said, I need you to validate what I'm saying, like validate my feelings. Don't give me like, cause I, I and I'll admit this about myself. I I'm flawed in this manner. And, and my nan is the same with similar people, mm -hmm. very practical mm. people. So if you, if you talk to me, my natural inclination is to try to give you advice obviously not in like a, in like I, I i would never turn around and be like well your life is screwed and this is what you need to do like it would be kind of like mm -hmm. oh well i think maybe you should try that right but i know yes that that's wrong and that sometimes that might go down well but generally speaking that when you're upset when you really at your lowest point and you need someone yeah. to empathize with you that's not what you want to hear. You mm. need to hear someone say like, well, I'm here for you. Yes. I, I hear I you, you know, like... I care. What can I do for you? Do you want a cup of tea? Yeah. Sometimes, is it, sometimes empathy is just being there. Like I remember one time um, mm -hmm. I was, I was at, um, I was working in a hotel and uh, there was a girl crying about her boyfriend and it was in the staff room. I could see people staring and stuff. And I, I was kind of shocked that no one had really gone up to her and just, you know, cause everyone knew her and liked her. She was a sweetheart, you know, really sociable, but no one was like going yeah. up to her and trying to help. 
And I didn't know okay. her that well, to be honest. Like we went to uni together, but we didn't really know each other. Um, mm. Spoken a few times. And yeah. I just went and sat down to, next to her and I was like, hey, do you want to talk? And she's like, yeah. And she's kind of opening up a little bit. And I was like, do you want to go get out of here? And she was like, yeah. Like you can tell straight away that was a good okay. move. Get her out of the situation. Yeah. And, and we got like really far away to somewhere that, you know, maybe a few staff members walking yeah. around, but we were outside. And yeah. I was just like, talk to me, tell me what's wrong. And she opened up, she cried. We had a little hug, you know, and she felt better. And I didn't really do anything. I was just there for her and I took her out of that situation. Mm. And sometimes that's all you need is you need like a hug or someone to show, hey, you know what, I care. Yes, the gesture of care, you know. And I think, I think if you can sort of, it's like you say, I think there is a selflessness or an attempt to be a little bit more selfless when you're uh, yeah, tr trying to be a a empathic or supportive of another person. But I think it's case by case. So I I've been really interested lately in this concept of uh, sort of masculine energy and feminine energy as a, as a shorthand. So like basically, you know, Jung's got this idea of the anima and the animus you know, the male and the female quality of the psyche or the self, you know. And I think that if we could say for shorthand, I'm not looking to uh, upset anybody here, but let's say the feminine quality is a more receptive quality, one that says, oh, hey, I care about how you feel. Would you like a cup of tea? You know, I, well, you know that's a really pithy example, but, but, but sort of I would just want to care about how you feel right now. That, that feels receptive. And then I think there is another quality, which is which made me think of your practical approach, which actually is a very necessary and good counterpart, which is here's and here's what you can do. But I think you need both. I think there is a, there's a time for right. This is let's get you into a space where you can just hear yourself think and I'm going to be here and just be with you. And there's human relationship. And then and i want to help you out in these ways here is some structure here is a way to to maybe do something what do you think of these strategies but to be available to what they have to say in return rather than to sort of voice it as advice you know here's what you should do it's like i reckon something like this helped for me how does that sit with you you know and to sort of really own it um maybe that's the difference i think that when you're at your lowest point and you need help, you need empathy. Mm. The last thing you want is for someone to start not only giving advice or telling you what you should do or shouldn't do or blah, 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 but they want mm. to be in control of the situation. They don't feel mm. in control of the situation. And therefore, if you come in almost like a bull in a china shop, trying to take over and be like you should do this you should do that you're taking away their power and they feel powerless in the situation anyway mm. and one thing i've noticed and i've been much more respectful of nowadays is to let people lead and let people ask if someone turns around to me and says after me listening says well mm. what would you do what do you recommend then i'll say mm. something i try my best to keep my advice to myself sometimes mm -hmm. i'll add it in if i feel it's a pr 
appropriate. Like I feel like maybe that's what they're looking for, but I try to err on the side of caution and not do that. And I'll give another example that's that's not quite the same thing, but it will illustrate my point about showing respect. So I met a new person today through one of my, oh, the other day through one of my housemates. And a really nice guy, great guy. He's unfortunately going through a situation with his now ex-partner and it it sounds a bit like sad and you know and i remember the second time we were there sitting there second time we've met or sorry it's the first time we've met him um and we're all sitting and drinking and and it was one of those situations where him and his friend were already talking about it we come and sit down and then we hear this and in my head about a thousand different thoughts are going through my head it's like i could say this i could say this i could offer this and then i'm just the whole time i'm thinking keep Mm. your mouth shut you don't know Mm -hmm. this person they haven't asked you um i think that there is a certain thing about you know knowing someone for a while and then maybe you know like for example let's say i became better friends with that person or whatever and then that person turned around to me and said oh chris this is what i'm going through what do you think i would see that as like an invite in like okay the relationship has now grown and this is what is happening now you know but the, the point i'm trying to make with this is that you got to always show respect to people and let them, if someone has a challenge or a problem, they need to lead that. And it's, you have no business trying to come in and, and take control. I get that. I, I, I really like that. I mean, it makes me think about ultimately what's your role you know, mm. what, as a friend. What is, what is the role that you, as you've been saying, you know, um, is the, uh, the context, the premise for the relationship to be a supportive one, you know, are, but there's different types of friends as well. You know, I, I, there's a really great, um, what's it called? Uh, there's a, there's a really great series on YouTube, which is just loads of cool mental health videos. It's like really nice animations, school of life. So the school of life series, there's one great video that's about how there's different types of friends and it's like there's the practical one that's good at talking about finances and commerce and networking right and then there's the there's the fun one that's just a bit of a wally and likes to sort of just be a kid then there's the then there's the receptive emotional um wants to talk about personal process and growth and and that kind of thing and i think it's like knowing the format of your relationship you know what is um, it? Uh, hmm. No, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think it also explains why it's a bit unfair sometimes to expect, I mean, it's unfair to expect perfection from anyone because it doesn't exist. But mm-hmm. uh, for example, you'll hear me occasionally say things like, well, this is a flaw of mine. I'm like this. I'm like that. You know, I'm very happy to turn around and, and talk about my flaws, but I've accepted the type of person I am. Like I always work on myself, but there are plenty of flaws. And the way I look at it is this is just the type of human being I am. And it's okay to have those flaws because for example, um, you know, I can be maybe um, that goofy guy. For example, you go, I can be that goofy, funny, happy guy, but I can't be that guy all the time because I'm actually quite a emotional, sensitive being. If I'm going through something, yes, probably you won't see me or like I like, for instance, I 
I really struggle keeping emotions in. Like if I'm angry, it's written on my face. If I'm upset, it's on mm-hmm. my face. Like I can't mm-hmm. pretend not to be or just be like, yeah, I'm great. Everything's great. And I know that there are people that can do that and that's amazing, mm-hmm. but um, we're all different. And I think you have to kind of accept people as they are and take the positives and the negatives and everything. And, you know, mm-hmm. the only time you ever call people out is, is when they're just doing that genuinely reprehensible stuff. Then yes. you, know, you really call them out. But Well, maybe, maybe it's possible for us to draw a distinction between a supportive relationship and a therapeutic relationship. Mm. Maybe that's the, the difference because I think you know, because uh, I don't want to say, you know, there's this type of friend, there's this type of friends, this type of friends. I'm not saying stay in your lane. But, no, but, but I think there's, you're it, right, though. <laughs> like, not every friend has to be. Like, I hear sometimes people say, like, oh, they weren't there for me. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, have you ever thought that, like, certain friends don't have that ability to be there for you in that way? And it's not yes. because they don't care. It's because they just don't know what to say. Like, there, there's been times exactly. when. That's the thing. I've, I've had situations where someone has reached out to me and they're going through something really hard and I, have, I don't know what to say mm-hmm. or do. And, and actually, it's, it's a perfectly valid response to say you don't know what to say. You, you know, it's the tone in which you say it. There's a, there's a way of saying, I care about what's going on for you. I don't know exactly how to, to help but I would like to, I care about your experience. Right, exactly. That, I mean, I mean, how powerful is that? Like to, to be able to just say that. I think that's you more know, important honest. to be honest than, than actually knowing is, is to show you that you care. Cause it's amazing how like when you go through a dark time sometimes and, and then you do reach out and suddenly all those people that said they were going to be there for you aren't there for you, you know, <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. I see how yes. it is. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, it, it mean, I think you're right. I think it means a great deal more to, to have that sort of integrity and, and, and honesty to be able to say, oh, I don't I know if I quite have the space right now with stuff going on. I want to be there with you. But, you know, to sort of say, I, I'm not going to pretend to be available in this way when I can't. You know, I'm going to say, yeah. here's my boundary, here's my space. Wait, and then, got- because... Well, I was just going to say, cause, because then it leaves the person that needs help, then it allows them to find the right place. You know, it's like, right, then in which case, maybe let's go into something more professional, get something for myself, you know, seek the support, know where I can go to get it. I don't know. I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. Let's, um, let's shift the conversation forward and talk a little sure. bit more about your experiences as a trainee psychotherapist how, how long have you actually got to go before you become fully licensed well it is a seven-year process in total and uh <laughs> i've uh, I'm, I'm about five and a half years through now so i'm oh. i'm now into the exciting uh, final stage where our, my, my official sort of contact hours will be ending you know with the actual taught aspect and then i'm out into the academic wilderness where i've got to write a, a great big 10,000 word dissertation it's big for me I know that's not a lot for some um, and, and a big case study but oh, I was like that's gonna be hard have I understood correctly as well though that you have actually had clients as part of this training is that right very much so yeah and I think it although it started off with a sense of sort of training wheels I'm just gonna um, let's just see what experience I can get 
I think that my, my, I feel very a lot more confident at the moment in my practice and it feels very uh, I feel more solid in what I do solid in terms of I know what my approach is and what my style is but, but how does it work I mean okay so you're training you're not like officially licensed but you're training um, do you like have someone monitoring you at all times or is it just kind of like they check in once in a while and you're just like, yes. I, I guess. Okay. So there's constantly someone there with you. That's right. So, so there's a couple of sort of um, structural things that, that support the trainee. So firstly, of course, there's the support of the college itself, you mm. know, contact, constant training, um, reflecting on, difficulties that you might have then you've got professional supervision this is the place where you might take that client's case for support because you you wouldn't really talk about it you know or name that person or really get into it with anybody really other than that person um, and you've got your own therapy so all of these things are training requirements and then on top of that you've got group peer supervision and these are things that go on week on week on week so there's a, a huge network of support around the any given relationship um yeah so so that's and the last thing is being a member of a body so the so in this case ukcp um uk counseling and psychotherapy institution is what being a member of that as a trainee with professional indemnity insurance and all of that sort of stuff is what allows you to go ahead with professional practice while you're training so what are your main goals with regards to being a psychotherapist? Like, what, what do you want to hope to achieve? Well, that's interesting because I think where I, where I started off was, you know, at the very beginning of the training, the position I was in was there was something of a panic. Like, what, what, let's go further back a little bit. There was a sense of panic right after uni because I was quite a lost individual, quite a sort of depressed individual, but still with this narrative, I must, in order to make life to be good, to make life okay, I have to get on. I have to become something, just pick something. Don't, don't dally, you know? So there was a real sense of anxiety to do that. And I had a go at being a teacher believe it or not. So I, I didn't go all the way through. I only did a, a, like a couple of months before I thought, you know what? Oh my God. And what did you I'm teach? Really glad that, um, it was going to be secondary school history. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> but you'd be a great teacher though. That's the thing. Uh, I know. Well, maybe. maybe, maybe. Well, I can see you with the, the, thing. With the, the, the brogues and the waistcoat <laughs> and the, why well, yes. Welcome to secondary school history. <laughs> <laughs> yes interwar british politics you'd Ten love it don't, be, don't pretend like 40. you would <laughs> uh, no no uh, uh, you know what i would have i think but a couple of things that helped me back and I, i'm trying to keep in mind the question i was answering originally sure. but I, I will circle back but the, the, the little history teacher caveat um I've got that feedback from people before your demeanor the way you speak whatever lends to the the you know are you a teacher i get on my tiktok lives all the time no <laughs> not. But, but the thing that stopped me was the idea that i would be having to teach essentially the same thing each time again and again and you know make these lovely relationships with 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 people with students and and, and getting a bond with folks and then they move on and in the next draft and i stay still and they move through 
And I think I found school to be quite a traumatic place in the end, you know, full of expectation, full of you've got to be, you know, a, a bright elite, you know, you've got to prove yourself or whatever, you know, very, very harsh conditioning. And I think that there was something about being close to that in hindsight that, that felt really uncomfortable. And I think that, you know, it was, it, there was something of a rush in it. I tried to do my research. I tried to speak to teachers, do my shadowing, get a sense that yes, I could do it. But as soon as the huge stack of uh, training folders, organizational stuff, my adult uh, depressed mind just couldn't handle it. I thought, I do not want this enough to put up with this for the next year like they cram a pgce into a year which and it deserves so much more time and i thought i do not have the, the stress threshold to handle this and i'm really really happy that i left um when so when you did that when you made that decision obviously you were depressed at the time yeah i mean how how did you feel i mean i imagine it must have been a relief but were you were you scared? Did you did you wonder like what the hell am I going to do? Like where were where yeah. was your head at? Absolutely, yeah. There was there was a definitely sense of bottoming out. Like the world, they know. Oh my god, there is no sense of structure. There's no sense of direction beneath me. I feel really lost in the world, and that was a horrible experience. But I think one that I actually necessarily had to feel. You know, it. I had to drop to let go to get off the educational career conveyor belt to get a different sort of perspective on what life's actually about you know i've always wanted to write a book called the power of no you know there's there's this book called the power of now i want to do a little tongue-in-cheek twist because it's like the impact of a no sometimes can be so positive i agree um, to say no to something uh i just add to that i remember i turned down the job when i was very young it's, it's the only decision I look back on and I wonder to myself because, you know, you know, sometimes you have like that one decision that you made and things could be so totally different and my life went in a different way. So I was 18 yeah. and um, I just, okay, so there was this like big opportunity to get this job through a family member, like a relative of a relative of a relative, that kind of thing. And um, the the job was for like a big, big finance company, like, you know, big deal, right? Uh, and yeah. I'm 18 and I'm very stubborn and, you know, kind of like, I don't know what I want to do. You know, I, I wanted to pursue music back then. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I didn't want to go to uni straight away, um, mm. but I hadn't completely ruled it out. But I was kind of just a bit unhappy at that time in my life and I didn't really didn't really have much hope for anything i just kind of felt like a bit of a waster and um yeah. i remember i was interviewing for this supermarket job and i was interviewing for this big business job and it would have basically been like a the way it was laid out to me was like um oh you'll be like an admin assistant for this like brokerage firm this broker and basically you'd be like a glorified pa that would just run around chasing them trying to uh get them to fill out expenses forms and oh they're so elusive these brokers and haha <laughs> good luck mm. with that and i remember the first mm. thing that one of the women said as i was walking through the building was huh it's a race to the weekend here which I kind of giggled at at first, but now I look back in retrospect, like, wow, they all must have hated their jobs if they thought like that. Mm. 
Like literally, because that, sure. that, well, that's another way of saying I hate my job, I hate my life, I live for the weekend because it's the only time I'm mm-hmm. away from this hellhole. But you know, yes. they had the standard nice swanky offices in London, like, ooh, wow. And that, that didn't actually impress me at all because I'd studied business for years at that point and I was just like, I, I saw through yes. all that BS and the corporate BS. But well, as, it's like, I just want to finish I mean, this because I, I just want to sure. throw this story to you and, and see what you think of it. Um, because I was, I was talking about like how a major decision can frame everything. And it was a big no for me because I went into this interview and this job by all intents and purposes was a thousand times better than this supermarket job that I was considering. And most people listening to this will think you're insane. Why would you go f- not go for this finance job? When yeah. and you and and there was a shoe in there. Actually, I went into this interview. I didn't really care, and I got the job anyway. And I was just like, "What? I got the job, <laughs> and I didn't care. Like, what the? F-? But I said yeah, no. Wonderful. I said no because at the time, and I still stand by this decision. I felt that I knew I wasn't good at finance. I've never been good at finance. My strengths have always lied in in creativity and and that sphere of things Uh, certainly in the business perspective so I knew I would suck at this job and it didn't matter how much training I'd have I would hate it and it's not to say that working in a supermarket was much better but at the same time I knew what I had with that and I knew that it would be tough but it wouldn't be forever and it's true it did last longer than I wanted it to but I just felt like mm. out of the two of them, that was the situation that made more sense and it would enable me to do my band still and et cetera, right? And so I, I'd said no. And I remember at my time, my family, um, were quite a few of them were like, oh my God, I can't believe you said no to this. Like, what's wrong with you? And I had to deal with all that. And I said what I said to you that, you know, I knew it wasn't right for me. I felt that it wasn't right for me. And it was yes. just a bad decision and a bad choice. So I said no. And mm-hmm. for years afterwards, I wondered about that. It wasn't until I went to mm-hmm. university that I really felt like, okay, you know what? That was the right decision. Because if I had have said yes and got into that sphere, I would have got sucked up into that. I probably wouldn't have yes. ended up going to university. And who knows where I would be? Maybe I'd still be working in that industry. I'd, I don't know. But there's yeah, so exactly. many things. That's the thing. There's so many things that I've done since then. Like I went to uni, yes. I lived in Europe. I, did all these different career paths and now we're back to creative endeavors and pursuing that those goals but it's like Mm. it all started from that no yeah 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 that's it that's what it takes i mean it's it's a lovely story because it gets me thinking yeah yeah about the value of no and also about you know it's like what is a good decision you know, I, I'm, I'm really interested in how a person comes to even make a decision about anything, really, ultimately, because I think one of my favourite quotes is Soren Kierkegaard, who says, uh, we live life forwards and we understand it backwards. So we're sort of moving through the world actually really quite blind as to really what to do. We have, in, an, in any present moment, I think that we have a, a sense of perspective of what one should do in the world. And yet at the same time, when you, when you don't, don't have this constant ideation of who you need to become and what you need to do, there is a life unfolding nonetheless. So it's like, you know, your decision to, to not go for that job means that you, your, your life has taken a different course, a different trajectory, 
And it's like, what a lovely perspective to hold, which is like, I'm just interested in this process, how it's unfolding. I'm, I, I am a process. I am not a product that has to become a particular type of product, you know, that's this swanky, professional, shiny office box image that we might have had at one point of ourselves. I've got to become this person. And I, and I found that because I just to circle back around to your first question, which was what do I intend to do will be as a therapist, I realized I didn't actually answer that. So, so I fell into working in a crappy sales job, an awful builder's merchant, this place that, that, you know, made fun of me because of the way I spoke. Like I had fallen utterly from, from the high heights of sort of private school and all this stuff that messed up and meant, wow, how on earth am I here? And I'm so glad that I got there because it's like, you know, when you read a story, any, any story of, a, of a, an adventure story, every single, when you've finished reading the whole thing, each individual thing that happened makes sense as a whole. So I think it is always an error in a sense to say, oh, I did that wrong. I should never have done that. You know, what is the function of regret other than to get us into a place where we can't feel happy about ourselves? And what's the point of that? You know, I will add to that, though, that I, I only believe in the context of regrets if you didn't take opportunities and chances. You didn't gamble on yourself. Okay, yeah. Because I know what you mean. So there's a balance. Well, okay, look at everything bad that's happened in your life, the bad things that have happened to you. Nine times out of ten, it will be things that were out of your control. Mm-hmm. And so what do you look at? You look at, oh, well, if I hadn't have gone for this job, then, you know, I wouldn't have experienced this and therefore it's my fault. Or, you know, if I hadn't been dating this person, then therefore nothing bad would have ever happened. It's like, no, look, bad stuff happens all the time in life. Life is like this. Like I'll give you an example. Today I ordered um, a a quick bit of breakfast from Starbucks, right? And uh, one of the things didn't come. And I remember it's funny because I, I constantly rely on my own feelings and how I feel about things. And it's almost like a superpower. It's like I know mm. what the situation is. When he handed me the bag, yes. I knew it was light. I was like, and I was like, oh, anything else? And he's like, oh, that's it. And I'm thinking, that's not right. Mm. Put it down. Naturally, mm. it's missing something. Now, if this okay. had been five or six years ago, I would have had an absolute meltdown and been like, oh, no, oh, this is terrible. You know, but today... And this, I think this shows how far I've come and how I now look at life, um, yeah. the highs and the lows. I looked at it in a positive light. I was like, you know what? I'm trying to save, sorry, um, lose weight and, and get in better shape. Um, I ordered two things, one of which was healthy. The other thing was not. And the healthy thing came. Yeah. The unhealthy thing didn't come. And I just looked at that like, yeah, I was like, do you know what? Maybe that's just fate's way of saying, hey, stick to this healthy stuff, man. Yeah, well, I, Tim, one of my favourite <laughs> phrases in general is, is from golf, play it as it lies. And I love that mm. phrase, play it as it lies. So it's like, or in fact, my wife that, who says, work, basically work with what you've got. And it's yeah. like, yeah, what, what have I got? Like what, it, what experience, what event is upon me right now? Well, and how am I going to choose to respond to it? 
I say this to my li- my um my live stream community sometimes whenever I'm having a bad day like I had one the other day and I said in the midst of that I was like well look you know I'll always be honest with you and and tell you when I'm feeling bad and, and when I'm not happy about things like I've I've voiced my frustrations about for instance this podcast not achieving the high numbers um despite me doing it for nearly two years or you know when I got big on my main TikTok account and I thought oh this is the beginning of something amazing and then it stagnated Mm. and now it's dead and you know or for instance Mm. me constantly trying to me failing my goal last year of getting to a thousand subscribers on YouTube or me trying to grow my following on Instagram like it's it's relentless yes but at the same time there are always good things happening whilst there are disappointing things happening and it's like you have to try and force yourself to focus on the good stuff you have to Mm -hmm. you have to frame it in that way like for example i still get to do this show i love doing this show when it comes to the acting goals that i'm i'm working towards i'm now getting paid to do that i'm not i'm not where i want to be but i'm certainly much closer than i was when i first started you know, and yeah. it's, it's, it's constantly moving forward. It's constantly pursuing your goals. Even if you're not living the life you want to live, what are you doing mm-hmm. in your life right now to try and get to where you want to be? And also mm-hmm. what's going right in your life? Mm-hmm. There's always good things going on. For sure. And I'd love to add to that inversely is that, you know, like some folks, for some people, you know, that, that really get on and have a get on, um, culture in themselves and, and, and actually get on expectation of themselves let's say a workaholic that a in a broad sense yeah <laughs> me too but so in a broad sense what the getting on with it so what is it that ultimately needs to be gotten on with so if if one can suffer from one's workaholism from one's get up and go from that drive you know what is it that's informing it is it a I've got to get somewhere because where I am is not okay. Then the work of that person, it, the, the getting on with it needs to take a different form. A, I'm okay to, to, to do, to be who I am as I am like this right now. Maybe I need to have a, a, a low period. Maybe I need to have a vulnerable period or a time to step away from something that I've been stuck on. So there's, there's so many ways in which someone can do make progressive positive steps in their life that doesn't just have to be one particular pigeonhole you know one thing i thought you were going to say before but you didn't say it but i i want to add because i think it's important is this idea that you know when you look back at your life you said you look at everything and it makes sense and often i try to do that i've certainly in more recent years i've been reflecting on everything that's happened in in the years gone by and I look at it always like one big story, chapters within a story. If one day I am to be successful and at the point that I want to be, then there's got to be a story that got there. You know what I mean? You you, you don't get anywhere in life without trials and tribulations. It's just how life works. And if you think about every single person you've ever been um, inspired by, like, you know, okay, acting, I'm a big, I want to be a professional actor. That's what I want to do. And one of my heroes, Al Pacino, um, as I recall, was either homeless or like he had like no money at all when he was filming The Godfather. Nothing. He was nothing to. I could believe that. You know. Yeah. And then what happened? It was 
one of the biggest movies ever made and look at his career since then but it's like it's a catalyst johnny depp another example yeah um i looked into his career but my god i've got a lot in common with that guy i really can relate to that that man um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wanted to be a musician didn't work out same here um he spent a, a considerable amount of time homeless and then through a friend who recommended acting to him he got into it that was exactly the same as how it was for me someone at work a few years back had suggested an acting role and i'd never even thought about acting ever as a concept i was like oh sure why not that'd be fun and then i did it and i loved it i fell in love with it and that's great i think it's the story isn't it it's the story of you and the story of you the whole thing yeah, it has to have twists and turns to get to the good stuff. Exactly. And let's say, you know, I, I've, I'm particularly interested in this topic because I have always suffered, I think. It's been a source of great low self-esteem or depression at times when I, I'm holding myself to a standard that I can never reach. It's sort of like a, what, like, like chasing the pink dragon, as it's called, like constantly chasing this, well, in the sense of what an addict might do. Oh. Where it's, okay. it, it's, it's a phrase within that, that addict culture where chasing the pink dragon, always trying to, trying to catch the, the elusive thing that you can't, or the carrot on the stick, trying to become self-improvement, make myself better, get yep. my career going, get this, get that. And I think the more that, that that becomes a preoccupation, the more I think it detracts from a, I like who I am right now, or I like who I am becoming. I like the process of living in whatever mysterious, nebulous way that it is. It's like if you can't uh, sort of stand where you are and go, I'm flawed. I, I have an experience as though I'm not where I want to be. I feel a bit lost, but can you love that about yourself? That's the question. Can you, because the irony is that if you're able to generally enjoy the process that you're on, the ship that you're on, however ideal you may think it is or isn't, it's, you're more likely to produce and become the sort of person that achieves these things anyway. One thing I've, I've started thinking about a lot with regards to this is that anytime there's a bad moment, that can potentially be a story because as you know like I love telling stories um I love telling stories on the show I love telling stories on live streams in conversations it's part of life it's what we do it's how we connect we tell stories we laugh about uh, the bad times in our life and it's fun and it makes Mm. you more engaging and interesting and real I think in some cases absolutely about a week ago it was my birthday and we were walking around. Happy birthday. Thank you. And we were walking around Manchester City Centre and we just finished a meal. And we just, you know, we were, oh, should we go do karaoke? Yeah, sure. Why not? That'd be a laugh. Yeah. And uh-huh. uh, <laughs> we go outside this place. It was maybe 7 p.m., maybe a bit early, but it's uh, Thursday night. You know, there could be some karaoke on, maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. It looked mm-hmm. open. The door was open. And there's a car outside with a grumpy looking guy um still don't know what his problem is but i'll get to him so we're kind of like all three of us you know like three stooges not really knowing what we're doing like who's going in first after you after you like we we don't know what we're doing Mm -hmm. but we're all thinking about the concept of of maybe going in there and just having a little you know we've had a a few drinks by this point we're like oh this would be fun yeah and as we're deciding and not really paying attention uh (laughs) this guy (laughs) 
it's like oh what are you doing can't you see it's closed and we all just look at the door which is quite clearly open and we're just like yes and look back at him and he's like oh it's closed you can't go in <laughs> fucking hell mate and then just like <laughs> bolts towards us and then walks through the door annoyed and we all just look at each other like what the fuck? <laughs> and then we we walk Strong, away mate. right and we were just laughing about it and we yeah. look back and he comes out he looks at us awkwardly and looks away and and just like tries to sort of like hide <laughs> and now it's, now it's become an in joke um with us so like anytime we're talking about anything uh and <laughs> we just be like hey um so i had i don't know eggs for lunch and you're like fucking hell mate and just it just i don't know it just makes us laugh that's but, fantastic but that's the thing that that was a bad moment and that, that could have been like a ruining thing. I could have been like, oh, I really wanted to do karaoke and that was ruined. Or you can just see that as like mm. a really hilarious moment that will always be Absol- mean. <laughs> well, there's something, there's something delightfully absurd in that story. So absurd. It, it makes me think, you know, it's like any, any bad moment can be, can be relished. You know, I think, I think Monty Python gets this across very, very well. Like in Life of Brian in uh in meaning of life in particular where they even make comedy about death they could even mm. make death funny so like you know the guy that's running along the the cliff uh, and he's about, he's gonna go over and then he's chosen like this man who's chosen his own manner of death um and then there's all the ladies topless like with their crash helmets chasing him and uh, there's something so wonderfully like yeah life's random as heck like so you've got this guy that goes oh you know like crashes through hilarious or or that or in the end like when there's a a huge disaster i don't know in the end i just find it absolutely hilarious (laughs) not 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 it was a tsunami hilarious (laughs) <laughs> well, no, it's not. I mean, oh, no, no. I'm gonna. I want to draw a distinction between. No, caring, I know what you meant. Yeah. I know what you meant. I just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Out of context, yeah, it just sounds it. hilarious. Death, destruction, yes. very funny, hilarious, laughing. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like you know, after all of the tragedy, all of the human tragedy, all of the care, all of the everything, there is a, a, an even bigger grand narrative, which is like, look at the the, the folly. Of, of human experience of tragedy of what we how we all behave how random is this bizarre thing that we call consciousness where you know there's death here and you know this there it's it's me- it's mental out there you know, and bit, I, I really enjoy that it's a bit like a coping mechanism though isn't it you know like mocking like even mocking the taboo things mocking death i mean death is mm-hmm. not funny but death is we all share it it's a big part of life um why why can't you joke about it you know i mean why not laugh about the ridiculousness of life i mean life is ridiculous yeah if if life if life were a comedy life would just be the most ridiculous out there comedy you've ever seen it'd just be some wacky stuff on channel four and you're just looking at it like what the fuck is this what this what for sure is it funny i guess it's funny what Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's like it's possible for for life to be an object of ridicule whilst also being respectful of it. I yeah, think that, that that there's a way to be um, uh, to have humour as part of how you approach life. So I think you need a healthy slice of humour, and if it f- suddenly falls into disrespecting 
your experience that, that that's like oh i find everything funny because i can't cope with how unbearable it is that's something different but if there, you can feel the the stuff and find it funny it, there always is then it's, it's like my, my dad my dad has like this really funny sense of humor and i've got it too we just like to be sarcastic about everything and just like yeah mm. and i remember we were at my great nan's funeral and um <laughs> so basically um yeah obviously obviously people are upset and everything's a funeral and we're there and we're showing respect but i remember yeah. that my uh my granddad had like like patted the, the casket like three times like you know like i'll be with you one day again you know like my dad said Oh, he's like he thinks he's fucking Del Boy. Like, <laughs> it's like, what is? This? And but when see that's the thing, he turns to me during the funeral service and says that to me, and I'm having to stop myself from laughing like, while we're at the funeral. Because I can see my poor granddad like crying, and then we just like, yeah, yeah, fucking Del Boy. What? Well, <laughs> it, uh, that's it. I think the the human experience has to include every side of it. Yep. You know, there's, a, a, you know, look at a funeral. There's always someone that's taking it really seriously. That's in a particular moment. There's someone else that that's finding it a bit funny, or someone that's a bit aloof or a bit bored, or that 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 is the true multicolored facet of human experience, right? And I, like, I remember similarly being at a funeral in which the son I'm a, I'm a, of of the mother who had died, I was with them, wow. and. But then they and they were saying, uh, I just don't know what to what to do to start off with, and I and I'd known him for long enough to know that there's a, a sense of humour to that, and I felt confident to say, well, how about as a theme tune we could have laughing policemen, you know, the old school, really funny, like there's this old track, <laughs> soundtrack, oh yeah, which 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 would have been completely and utterly inappropriate and absurd, and yet he said. The, the the laugh that I got out of that it was it was you you said it to me with such respect and yet it made me it tickled me so much like when I was doing my speech I, I was really nervous about sort of giving this heartfelt speech and then remi- remembering every now and again the laughing policeman gives you that little bit of bearing to go that, that it's not just utter tragedy in death well it's perspective isn't it I mean I think I personally believe death is, you know, death is not the end. It's a transition, if you like. Um, And I think the only time I've ever really been upset with death is when it's too soon for someone. Mm -hmm. I remember remember going to someone's funeral when I was like 17. It was actually kind of beautiful. Um, It was someone that went to our sixth form and... um, he had a disease called muscular dystrophy mm-hmm. and um i remember the doctors had said to him apparently when he was because he was like up until about the age of nine or ten i think he he was just like a normal lad playing football you know just doing his business and you know and then one day he gets diagnosed with this illness and he starts deteriorating like physically and he's confined to a wheelchair <laughs> so by the time that i meet him uh, at age 10 or 11 in secondary school he's fully combined to his wheelchair but he had like this just amazing sense of humor like just you know really made the most of life in despite of that and 
It's a good dude. And I remember, um, gosh, yeah, that was like the most shocking. Sorry, I didn't actually plan to go into this, but I feel like I should share no, it. No, it's okay. Go for it. I remember we were in sixth form and he he was in my uh, general studies class. I remember that. Yeah, he was always there with uh, this lady that would help him. Like, I, I can't I can't remember what she would do because he was really intelligent, by the way. He was the mm-hmm. A-star student, so intelligent. Um, so I'm not sure what she would do to help him. I guess maybe just help him with getting things or writing something she helped him in some way and i remember that they were always there every single lesson and one week they weren't and i was like that's weird and i think i think it actually might have even been a few weeks actually and it's a bit like oh i wonder where ben is at and then um the form tutor comes in or the teacher comes in she looks a bit like very serious and this is a woman yeah. who's quite sarcastic a lot of the time. So it's like, oh, what's, what's going on? And then um, she just tells us. And we're all like, wow. Damn. Because we, like, we all knew uh, like how muscular dystrophy works in that like, I mean, he got to mm. 17, I think. And generally speaking, if you've been diagnosed with it from, from a young age, you're not really supposed to last that long. So it's kind of amazing. Okay. And apparently he knew, which is even more incredible. He knew that he probably wouldn't have very long. And yeah, he still lived life to his fullest. And I remember fast forward to the funeral. Um, there was kind of like an open invitation. It was a little like, let's go to Ben's funeral. Um, and we all did. Like I remember there was like at least 100, 150 people from our sixth form. Um it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was a beautiful service, very sad. And I remember just being upset and crying and I wasn't like close to Ben. Like we, we talked a lot, you know, and he was a good dude, but we weren't like close friends or anything, but I remember just being really upset and frustrated because I was like, this is, this is a really good guy, a smart guy. And like, he doesn't get to keep living, but then yeah. there's, then there's like plenty. And I'm not saying anyone deserves not to live. Cause of course not, but uh, no. you know, it's like, there are some people that are miserable and angry and take it out in the world and just never make the most of their lives. And here's a guy who's like put everything into life and he's checking out early. And it's like, that just doesn't seem fair. And I don't know, when I think about death, there's been a lot of people, similar situations, unfortunately, some of them taking their lives. And I, I think about that. That's the only part of death that I don't like because I think that death, you know, death is a good thing because we all we ha- we should have beginnings and endings. That things shouldn't go on forever. I mean, think about your favorite TV show that goes on for past more seasons than it should. You're like, oh, when were this shit? Sort of, you know, sort of like <laughs> the Archers. In the Archers, you're no longer really necessarily interested in what in anything that's happening because it's just. The artist has been running for so long that it's just this sort of beige backdrop. This sort of <laughs> you get these TV serials like EastEnders, and and they never ever end. And it kind of makes me wonder, what's the point? If it never ends, mm. what's the point? Like I actually feel like TV soap operas are like a great reflection of life at its worst mm. 
because <laughs> like life yes. should end think about the best tv series you've ever seen you know it ended it had an ending yeah. you might not have liked the ending but it ended and you remember the Absolutely. good times whereas like mm-hmm. eastenders like i think about times i've you know because i've been addicted to them all like, no not shitting on soap operas like they're very addictive they're good but for sure the, everything's happened that can happen and then everything just happens again and again mm. And again, and over and over and over. And it's like, don't get me wrong, there is a lot of routine in life and a lot of similarities in life. But if you want to shake things up, you do shake them up. And that's why I embrace like, okay, you got to embrace the fact that life is always changing and it can't be the same forever. It has to change. And that's a good thing. And you got to go with it. And if you try to resist it, it's problematic. Whereas if you go with the flow, it works and it works in a positive way you know yeah absolutely yes i think so yeah i mean it's funny the uh, just thinking about change now <laughs> yeah changes well it's like if we lived for if we did live forever for all eternity i wonder whether we would ever do anything you know not, because... no well no because you do everything that's possible and then like do you remember do you ever watch star trek the next generation Yes, I think it did. So there was a character called Q. Remember Q? Yes. So for those who've never watched Star Trek, basically Q was an omnipotent being that couldn't die. Uh, he, it, if you like, could travel through time and space, do whatever they wanted all the time. Immortal, never dies, right? Mm-hmm. And so he'd kind of taken to just like annoying people and causing havoc and stuff, which I understand. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I think the cool thing about the character is it exposes the problems with being alive forever and, and how immortality would be a bad thing because you just, you would get bored. You do everything that's possible to be done. And then what? What, what have you got to do once everything's been done? Mm, exactly. You, you would just sit around doing nothing because there's nothing to do. You'd, mm. probably, you'd probably wish for death. You'd wish for mortality. If you were immortal, you'd wish for immortality. There, I said it. I, 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 it this got me hooking back around to sort of a little bit of psychotherapy stuff that was relevant to this, which is that... I always think if in a, in a person like in myself, let's say I've got a deadline to hand something in um, an, an essay or something and I'll find myself kicking off against it, procrastinating. Yeah. Because I, I think because on some level, one way of reading it, it's because I resent the fact that time is passing. I resent the fact that there is a deadline because ultimately it tracks all the way to thinking about mortality. The clock is ticking. We are moving. We are dirt. We are slowly dying. You know, it's once I finish, once I finish this essay, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Once I finish this essay, I can't finish this essay. Please make it start last forever, please. No, it, it, it's, I don't know quite what I mean, but it's like, I get it. It does, it does get us into themes of mortality because it's like you only have a certain amount of time and you have a choice of how you want to respond to that. I need more time. There's not enough time. Uh, or or That's a there's one. a, let's get on, let, you know, let's just see what we can do in it. So there's a certain <laughs> amount of having to accept the limits of your time, the limits of your life, the limits of mortality and what you can do. Once you're able to come to terms with that, I think that that is one stage in maturity that we can reach, which is like, right, I have a, a real healthy awareness of my mortality. 
with mm. my limited time in this world what would i like to do with what i've got no i, I completely agree with you um mm. the funny thing is now i've my life's changed where there were times when i hated life and i didn't want to live anymore and i was just like this is going on forever it takes time time seemed to drag on so much that expression time flies when you're having fun that's true because when it sucks oh my god does it drag on yeah. you know you, you're clock watching you just whereas time now flies by like i can remember times waiting at bus stops and and it's only like i've only got to wait half an hour but it feels like an eternity whereas half an hour now it goes by like five minutes absolutely like, and, and i find myself constantly thinking like where does the time go i don't have enough time to do all the things i need to do because it just yes. flies by but, like a, ah. but but so much of that i think is a, is a perspective you know it's, Maybe. it's because it's like you know if i'm if i'm doing i was at the gym earlier for an hour you know and like there's days where if i'm writing an essay you know and i procrastinate i could watch two procrastinate watch two episodes of dragon ball z that hour's gone, you know, and then a couple of minutes to, but I'm at the gym and I'm lifting weights. That feels like a real long, spacious, dedicated session, you know, mm. and my sense of time in that is, you know, I, I don't know. It feels a lot enjoyable. I get it. Longer. So no, it no, what you're doing. I agree. You lose yourself in tasks, in moments, in things. And it does fly by. Like, like life for me right now is flying by, but I think it's because I'm busy and I'm enjoying what I'm doing for the most part. Yeah, I'm, yeah like it. And I really live in those, in those moments and experiences now. Yeah. I, I find myself, yeah. it's like I find myself kind of constantly going, should we do that? Yes, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Because I can sit at home and do nothing all I want. But, you know, mm. as soon as an opportunity comes, got to go for it. That's great. I like that. I, I, I've been trying to get that late more recently. You know, this, it's like I was saying earlier about, I mean, this is, this is probably a whole topic now, but I have maybe something of an agenda because it's like, I'm interested in the idea of a divine masculine. So like, but what I mean by that is, is, you know, what I was saying earlier about masculine, feminine energy, you know, it's, it's just a shorthand. It's just a way to describe it. But for me, I've been reading this book called Iron John, which is about men and masculinity. And it talks about different types of men, you know, across the ages. And, and it gives two examples of the very, very uh, 1950s American unsensitive, um, all American male, you know, that, that provides for the family, but isn't particularly emotionally receptive. He's just 100% do and go. And then he says, so that's one extreme. And then the other extreme is this sort of soft 1960s, 1970s emergent masculinity where the, they become receptive and emotionally intuitive and all of that sort of thing. But still something's missing because there's a certain lack of self-determining. You know, it's all very spacious. And how can I accommodate you? Which is, you know, men, I think, embracing a more, let's say, feminine quality, something like that. And this book talks about you know the the reclaiming of a divine masculine so you know when you look out in culture now how many times when you think of how maleness and masculinity is described how many times can you think toxic masculinity straight away patriarchy straight away um incels red pill movement jordan peterson like 
authoritative, you know, is there any account in popular consciousness really that, that can celebrate maleness or celebrate a male quality or that can support the idea of a new, you know, who are men to be in this world? If we're not to be this or this or this or this or this, what's left, you know? And I think this book, I and John talks about the, 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 so the, the divine feminine, you know, women are very much, I think, in general, culturally in touch with and very vocal. They've got a real dialogue. Feminism is, is, is a big movement, you know, but the, there's not as so much of a masculism, as it were, like a, I've not, I don't see that much of an equivalent out there. And I guess this is a really, really long way to come back to my original point, which is that if you say, I'm just going to do it, I'm just going to get, get on with it. I understand that in a sense as a, as a embracing that sort of aspect. Like I have agency, I can do things in the world. I feel confident enough to execute my, my will and make it happen. And for me, because I've always been actually very, I've had that sort of stifled in my life. You know, I, I've had a very emotionally, um, negligent mother um that who i no longer sort of speak to anymore that at one point you know when i was really angry one time with something very very awful that they did they just chose to laugh at me and the consequence of that was to sort of i think on a deep level was to sort of shoot down that certain powerful rageful sort of maleness like my feelings matter you know so, so it's been a long story I, of reclaiming that yeah sorry yes do you mind if i ask you about a bit more about that situation um yeah go for it well I'll, i can tell you if it's, i won't go yeah I, I don't obviously i don't want to pry too much i, I think i'm more interested hmm. as far as how it shaped you and where you were at in your life right now so for example when when that particular incident happened were you an mm. adult or was that when you were a child this this was an early teens thing okay i, I, I was i was pretty, pretty young enough for it to really i was old enough to have to make all sorts of ideas and sort of you know symbolize what was happening and two not not old enough to be able to sort of not take it as a disaster how old would you say you were when you were cognizant of the fact that okay this is wrong this is not normal what the way that i was being in the world where it well i think well no i mean I like okay because like everyone grows up with, with a different like family situation yes and then you naturally compare yourself to other people's families or you you realize mm. certain things are not okay maybe not everyone deals with the same thing i mean there's to a certain extent whatever is considered the general norm let's say in society if anything falls outside of that and then you suddenly realize oh, okay this is problematic this is not normal mm. i i for instance shouldn't be treated this way or this is not how normal people respond to x y and z like was there a particular yeah. moment where you were like hang on that's not quite right i think i think at the time and i think this is actually the nature of of trauma i believe so i i always take the definition of trauma to be this which is uh it's not the event itself that causes the trauma so for example a car accident or in yeah. one scenario or um 
a long-term scenario of emotional neglect or, or abuse or something like that that those are both events in a, in a way it's not the event itself that is the cause of trauma i think it is the lack of understanding the lack of reception after that so let's say someone has this car accident or thing they appeal to the other to their caring other in a sense to say hey this is really awful and upsetting this has made me angry or i'm scared of this i don't know what's happening i need some support and when that secondary appeal for support doesn't get met with right. reception that's i think when trauma can occur where where it's got no place to land where the experience of something being wrong has to be swallowed you know and just put away somewhere before you know because it's not safe it's it's not an, an emotion that's helping you to survive in the context that you're growing up in so it, it took me a very long time to realize oh gosh i've been putting up with a great deal here and it took it as a huge delay because of how good i had gotten at normalizing the environment around me what time did you move out home what age um i well i left home actually well it's a it's a bit of a a, a mix-up really so i've moved between different parents houses and all this oh, sort of thing okay mm -hmm. but but to say when did i leave home proper as in when did i sort of fly the nest yeah. like that yeah so that was um just when i went off to uni basically you know i never really quite so, came back home since did you so I was, um 18. did you feel let's say in either during university or maybe in your first kind of years living by yourself thereafter, was there a point where you kind of, how can I put it, um, decompressed maybe, or, or maybe just kind of, because I, I will say this, when, when I left home, one of the biggest things I realized is that my perception of what I thought the world was, was completely different. Yeah. I was I was terrified of so many different things and then in actuality they're not things to be scared of mm -hmm. uh, e even just silly stuff like paying bills or paying the rent like there is a lot of hassle with that stuff don't get me wrong but like actually those are like the easy things in life the things that are difficult are like dealing with people and politics and that's the sort of shizzle that causes problems but for you um, given that you were you were aware of this, as you said, it was it was not like a straightforward thing. So I would gather that uh, a lot of your teens was like trying to get through that ride the wave, and then when you did leave, I imagine that must have been yeah. kind of like a a relief point. Like, okay, I can finally get away from this now. I think so. Yeah, but but you know what, the 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 decompression you speak of, I think, didn't quite happen till much later because. I think that although I had gotten away from the original, let's say, source, the you know, circumstances that had caused me difficulties, so difficulties namely being absolute dogged, tireless perfectionism, which has caused me so many problems because I, I just can't, you know, I'm too afraid to sometimes act or do or create anything because of this crippling perfectionism. Um, fear of vulnerability, you know, fear to have my needs met for example so I, I i learned to adapt by thinking well it's a real virtue of me to be so independent that i won't need i won't need any to ask anybody to get my needs met so i'm like 
very, very relentlessly independent. And I carried those qualities with me. Oh, and one more key one, which was this narrative that I have to be strong. So, you mm. know, tra so, so, so trauma for me was, was a real um, the big divorce, big mess, parent, the whole thing. And the, 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 what I took from it was uh, in, uh, the only way for me to be safe here, because there wasn't really that much reception of my hurt at that moment in time so i learned a lesson there where it's like i've got to just be strong here you know and I'll, you know bunch it all up gather it all up and take it with me and i did that actually way beyond leaving home you know because i have that i have that habit that way of seeing the world carry on all the way through and really it was it's really only been in the last perhaps decade when i first started to proper psychotherapy for my own purposes which then later inspired me to go into therapy training where self-exploration, you know, and trying to inquire about why I assume certain things about life and what patterns are going on. That's when I started to really get the space, the detachment um, from that. Thing. With regards to your decision to have like an online presence, like, for instance, I've noticed, you know, you don't use your, your real name, um, which I, I understood. I just figured like, OK, you just want to keep it separate from psychotherapy and stuff like that. But um, to be fair, there are a lot of people in serious professions, even psychotherapy, that are online and sometimes even offer advice and, and whatever via these platforms. Yeah. But I, I guess my question to you is, is kind of twofold with this sure. regards to this so firstly the first part of it is why did you decide to kind of open up about your traumas and stuff mm. on social media now i know obviously you'd said that you know you, you you'd, you'd explored it through therapy and that's kind of you know partly why you decided to to pursue psychotherapy and also um as yes. it's helped you to open up you've kind of realized and explored that and and you're working on that right yeah for sure so that's one part of it and then the second part of it is just in general what was what was the goal i mean when you look through your content it's kind of like a mixture of um humorous content now you, you have a great sense of humor you're a funny guy you know you're stylish you've got a lot of cool interests you know it's you're a fun fun guy and and like and when i look at all the people that follow you and, and what you do and stuff and i've hopped in your lives and stuff it's, it's similar to what yeah. i do in the sense that um that sense of interaction with people mm. weighs on your mind just as it does on mine as far as like being you know sometimes people will message you and be like this live this video got me through something and it's you know and when you start receiving messages but like that by the way it really yes. weighs on you and you're like oh wow okay this is having a profound impact now add to yeah. that that what you're doing what you're pursuing which you've been vocal with your audience about is the fact that you are pursuing psychotherapy you're training in this this is what you're going to do and you yeah. share aspects of your education and what you've learned and what you're understanding with your audience mm -hmm. so i guess framing that whole question into one big thing what was mm. the behind the decision to go online and, and do this and and what what is i suppose your goal with this what are you trying to achieve by doing this hmm. i think i have to start 
with my own selfish motives, I think, to start with. So, <laughs> so, so I'm trying to be trying to be fully, fully transparent on this one because I, I'm thinking back to the pandemic. I'm th- mm-hmm. the, 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 t- the time when I first discovered TikTok was a time when I was absolutely at my most isolated actually the most i was on furlough so i had all the time in the world indefinite time i thought gosh you know i can really feel the vacuum the absence of others and i think i wanted to start off with i didn't really know what i wanted to use tiktok for per se you know i thought i'll just play some banjo on here i'll do some silly impressions and tell some jokes and then i started to get a following i used i started to do a couple of lives where i talked about what i did and people were really engaged and i thought gosh you know this is actually maybe this can be an outlet for 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 lots of different things and i've always said to people that the, that my type of content is what i call wholesome nonsense so my, my my objective really is to to entertain to educate and to inform not and i and i really really stress this not to be therapeutic per se if it's in if it's incidentally therapeutic that if that my talking about what i struggle with you know for the sake of championing vulnerability to say hey you know what like we we so rarely get an experience of what life is in fact like for a person you know someone that's interesting to to probe into themselves with some depth there's a way to model for others hey here's how i engage with stuff that i struggle with and i'm not giving advice out exactly but it's like if people can riff off of hmm, this guy's you know kind of got a good way of engaging with himself like this is this is somewhat inspiring or or i don't agree with this let's debate with him or whatever like it's interesting just to see what responses i get so i i guess i get a lot out of the interaction with the audience i like I think it's also a way to really um, synthesize, to really gather exactly what I think about certain topics. Like here's, I have a theory about Melanie Klein or I have a theory about Freud or here's something that I've learned. How can I make this a deliverable 60 second, you know, or three minute video? And I really enjoy, you know, I just enjoy presenting this stuff and seeing what people think. so that that's kind of I don't know what the objective is yet, what the overall goal is. It's just an unfolding. Huh, this is enjoyable, but that that's kind of how I do how I live, really. Do you think you'll continue producing content online when you eventually receive your, you know, psychotherapist license and stuff? Do you think it will change? Yeah, uh, I don't think it will. You know, I don't think so. Uh, I think TikTok has seems to be because it's like. I think I've learned a way to be, you know, boundaried because I don't want to go on and start offering people therapy. I don't want to start weighing in, bulldozing in with here's how you deal with mental health and giving that kind of advice. It's like, especially as a professional where it's like there is liability to dole out advice, hit left, right and centre. Right. And it's like, I also noticed that some people do this. Some people just say, here's what you should do. Here's how I changed and you can't too, you know, like that. That's like, what is this guy's motive or what's her motive? What's going on here? I, well, maybe, but, but also I need to be seen as someone, I need to be seen as someone that can, that's on top of things that, that, that can be helpful. How is it serving the ego? You know, and I think, well, I don't know if I can incidentally help people if it incidentally inspires people, great. But I'm mostly doing this for my own fun. You know, if people want to riff off that, great. 
Oh, no, I, I, I totally get that. And I think you've done a really mm. good job of, of um, mediating that, so to speak. I think that um, you have to be careful in your profession about things like ethics and morals and yeah. what's right to tell people. And it, it shocks me sometimes seeing actual licensed therapists online on these websites giving people advice. And it's like, yeah. it's, it's not like you're in the room with these people, you know, and they, they'll give you like a, a little brief, comment that gives an idea of what they're going through but not really like you, you need to sit down and talk to someone for like maybe an hour before you can really gain a fuller perspective as you put it earlier in the conversation framing what's going on framing yeah. not only what's going on but how to set an action plan with that with regards to step-by-step progress of like okay well this is where we are this is where we need to be and this is how we're going to get there just like anything else in life you know you plan it structure it and then you work on those goals one by one you can't just dish out a few occasional comments here and there like oh do this i did this and it changed your life because it's just that's just not how life works <laughs> no no i think some of the better therapists there's a particular chap that i think from he's like german i think he's called ben oh, i can't remember his account exactly but he does a really good job of sort of saying, here are some typical things that I consider bad advice and here's why, you know, and here's an alternative. And it feels very considered rather than just soundbite, fire it off, you know, here's what you do. Uh, that's not, that's not, that's not got a shade of doubt to it. Doubt it's is important. It's almost like it's designed for the algorithm. Interesting. Mm, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Fake Isn't conspiracy it theorist. Well, yes. you know, I mean, it's, some people take their sense of responsibility seriously and some people don't, I think, you know, I mean, yeah. I always try to look at the things that I say, like, I give advice sometimes, but that doesn't mean that like, I think it's like, I, I'll try to frame it as like, well, this is what I would do. You know, this might not work for you, etc. Um, I always make a point of saying that to people because I think it's important to, to spell that out. Because we are, we're all different. We all approach things in different ways. And I think that's a big aspect of advice in general is if you're giving advice to someone else, try to give advice for them, not and what works for them. And really, yes, ideally, you need to know them to really be able to give them the right kind of advice that would work for them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or, or even if it's just to, just to take ownership of the advice that you're giving. You know, here's here's what I I did, and here's why. Here's my circumstances. Yours might differ, but maybe you can take something from it, and then and then just sort of it's very heavily implied that they can choose whether or not to take it. You know, I think so. Yeah. Um, I'm conscious of time. That's um, fine. Let's move so, it on. Got a couple more questions for you. Final questions. Okay. Sure. Yeah. What's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've ever. No, I've been preparing because uh, I'm. I know that you asked this question, and the answer I would say is to keep close the idea that. Uh, so what you conclude about life, let's say this this is happening. This is what this means. This is what that means. You know, this my problem is defined like this, defined like that. I think you can get very locked into. Uh, into this assumption and it's necessary to stay open so the best advice that i think i could give and receive 
is to always stay open to the possibility that you do not fully know exactly what's going on. It's necessary to be uncertain in life. Doubt is, a, is one of the three pillars of Zen wisdom. That doubt is required. Doubt in what, it, what something means. So for example, in the case of trauma. So for me, I've experienced a great deal of trauma that would lead me to conclude that it is a disaster if I don't keep going and keep trying to get ahead and be on the make and make my career work and stuff like that. It's a disaster. You know, that's the conclusion. And if I lose sight of that, this, that source, when I made that conclusion because of that trauma, because I, I brush the trauma under the carpet, brush my life experience under the carpet, then I'll start to really believe that I really must be this, you know, productive person. Um, and I, there's a little metaphor. So Pippin in Lord of the Rings, he says, oh, why, why are you heading back to Isengard? You know, when they're on the giant shoulders, on the tree beard shoulders. Because the closer you are to danger, the further you are from harm. And I believe that this also applies to difficult emotion, difficult experience. If you can keep a hold of trauma or something that has informed the things that you assume about life, about yourself, about what to do and who you are. If you can keep a hold of the source of it, then then you you can you have a means to question it. You have awareness. You have awareness to be able to then open it up and go, well, that doesn't have to be the case. So so it's necessary I would say stay open to what things mean and 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 question oneself. Be yeah. humble. I love mm. it what's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far well hmm, i mean that's one oh gosh have i peaked <laughs> greatest life lesson greatest life lesson hmm. i'm gonna have to can you can you edit this if i take ages to reply <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be editing all day. Thanks okay. to you. Sorry, oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no need okay. for apologies, my man. You take as much time right. as you need. <laughs> I, think, I think I've got something. So life advice, I mean, something that's worked for me is to, to not be afraid of your own power. And actually, I want to read you a poem. Oh, wow. Because this, yeah, because, and I, I was thinking about reading you this. So basically, I've more recently come to this conclusion that, you know, because I'm, I'm in, there's a lot of fear and doubt and disbelief uh, in myself. And I'll, I don't take action and don't do much. Don't, don't really go outside of my box. You know, I won't write my essays confidently or procrastinate or I won't make that phone call or I won't get on with certain things I need to do because I'm reluctant. You know, this part of me wants to stay small and kind of just yeah, hunker down and resist. But this poem really was actually given to me by my therapist, um, and it's meant a lot to me. So this is it. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small does not serve the world, there is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do, 
It's not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So, so life advice would be to not be afraid of your own ability, your own power, dare, have the audacity to assume that you, you can do things, you can become someone if you, if you allow yourself to, to believe in that, that you're entitled to it. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. This was, yeah, really, really beautiful. This reminds me of why I love doing this show and getting like nice surprises like that. Mm. Oh, good. As we draw things to a close for today, do you have any upcoming projects or final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I mean, upcoming projects I've got, yeah, well, therapy stuff, I've got two massive essays. So that's kind of, that's what's going on. But TikTok projects, you know, just to bring it back into the original, well, the, the premise, the reason that we met in the first place, which is I've got some ideas about what I want to do with my account, um, which, and one thing is I want to start doing a little bit of a play, a psychodrama. So oh. the way that I, yeah, like I so said, the way that I understand myself or a way that I find really useful to play with my own sort of self-concept is to identify different parts of me. One part of me is this sort of get go you know do well in life be a be a knight you know go for it another part of me is sort of this this apathetic teenager that's like oh everything's pointless man yeah that's another part someone over here that's the workaholic like you can't go on holiday we won't earn enough and another part over here and here and here and basically like over time i've developed these different characters just to sort of have a bit of fun with my own self-understanding right and i and i want to start off a series where i have these people different people interacting with each other over different situations so so that's a project i guess um Sounds awesome. and I, yeah and the other part of your question which was like what would you leave with listeners maybe that's that's a fun thing to do if you're interested in you know self-exploration one place to begin is to think about what different disparate uh, parts of oneself there are you know and that's a good way i think to start understanding or engaging with your own self it's like okay what players are actually on the table here who's got the most power um who doesn't really have that much of a voice i think that that's a really great way to get started with with self-understanding couldn't yeah. agree more well leo sure. it's it's been an absolute pleasure i want to say a massive thank you for for taking the time to be with us and thank you share pleasure's mine as always um always welcome on the show again and uh, just a massive thank you for, for for being here yeah well thank you too yeah well look forward to next time till next, till next time. time and to all the listeners of the christian re podcast as always be safe be well and i'll see you in the next one